thank you. It is good to be back, Spring Hills. Uh, this is my fourth time here. Um, my wife, Stacy and I were here in November of 2016, so almost two and a half years ago was the last time we were here, <clears throat> and it's taken Brett two and a half years to invite us back. I don't know why, but it's good to be here. Every time we come to Northern California, every time we come visit you, the weather is terrible, and you always promise, well, this is abnormal, it's normally beautiful, it never is. Well, today and yesterday and the day before have been beautiful, so thank you. <clears throat> we, we've been in Northern California now for 10 days. We were near Sacramento last weekend and then here this weekend, so we were in Santa Rosa all week from Sunday night until today, and the first four or five days were cold and rainy, and I'm like, these people are liars, man. Every time that we come and it's raining and they say, oh, it's, this is not normal. Like, this is absolutely normal. It's the only weather they got up here. But I have been proven wrong uh, the last few days, and so it is good to be back. We pulled into um, onto the campus on Tuesday for a staff meeting, <clears throat> and when we pulled onto the campus here, it really felt like we were coming home. This place really does feel like a home away from home for us. Uh, your pastor, Brett, was one of the first responders four years ago when my life came crashing down, which I'm going to talk about this morning. And so this place and your pastor has a very special place in my heart particularly, so it is a real it's honor to be back here at Spring Hills. I want <clears throat> to focus your attention this morning for a few minutes on Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 4 through 9, and I'm not going to do a <clears throat> systematic exposition of this passage. I'm reading this passage because there are a lot of parallels to what the Apostle Paul says here and my life over the last four years. Circumstances in his life, the circumstances in my life, very different, uh, but he came to the realization, as have I, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and that everything minus Jesus <coughs> equals nothing. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Paul is about to give us his very impressive spiritual resume. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness or a rightness of my own that comes from the law or my performance, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Let's pray together. With one voice, O God, we pray, come thou fount of every blessing. And tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor 
your amazing grace. I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly and compellingly to everyone here. You are in complete control of all things, and that means that nobody's here by accident. Every single one of us is here by divine appointment. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our fears, our secrets, our shame, our insecurities. You know those things that keep us up at night. You know our guilt. And you brought us here this morning to set us free. To set us free, to liberate us, to unburden us, and to give us rest. So I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite stories is a Muhammad Ali story. It's a story about a time he was flying somewhere, and the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and says, would all passengers please fasten their seatbelts? We're getting ready to experience some turbulence. And so the flight attendants were walking up and down the aisle, checking to see if people had fastened their seatbelts. And one flight attendant saw that Muhammad Ali had not fastened his seatbelt. And so she said to him, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt? And he looked at her in typical Muhammad Ali fashion and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Fasten your seatbelt. Now, one of the reasons I love that story is because if life teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that none of us are Superman. We are all broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Or as one pastor once put it, cheer up, you're a lot worse off than you think you are. But God's grace is infinitely greater than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. Some of you know this and some of you may not, but I used to be a pastor. Some would even say a successful pastor. I was leading a large, well-known church in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was writing a book a year. I was on TV every week around the world. I was on the radio every day. I was traveling all over the country, speaking at conferences and churches and other events. According to the world standards, I had everything. I had an intact family. I had a successful career. I had notoriety. I had influence. I had a platform, an audience financial security, a good reputation, all things we typically spend our lives striving for. And then it all came crashing down. Two things that I had come to believe were secure forever were my marriage and the ministry that God had given me, and I lost both of those things during the spring and early summer of 2015 due to my own sin and my own selfishness. My first marriage had begun to fall apart, and rather than giving it the attention it needed, it ultimately ended in divorce, in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife and therefore deserved to lose both the marriage and the ministry that God had given me. And because I was a public person, I lost it all very publicly. My most well-known moment in life also happens to be my most embarrassing moment in life, my most shameful moment in life. 
But with those two losses, with the loss of my first marriage and the loss of my ministry, came a thousand other losses. The loss of friendships, the loss of an intact family, the loss of purpose, the loss of credibility, the loss of financial stability, the loss of hope, the loss of joy, the loss of opportunity. In reality, the loss of life as I knew it. Life for me went from feeling like a dream to feeling like a nightmare overnight. I broke my own life. I broke my own family. I broke the hearts of people who loved and trusted me. And I wanted to die, literally wanted to die. My mom, I'm the middle of seven children, and my mom, when I was young, nicknamed me Sunshine, which is neither cool nor masculine. Um, But she nicknamed me that because she said, every time you walk in a room, everything gets brighter. I've always loved the sights and the sounds and the smells of life. I've always been a people person, an extrovert. I've always looked forward to the next moment, whatever that moment would be. And now for the first time in my life at 41 years old back in 2015, I was experiencing some unfamiliar things, despair, depression, hopelessness like I had never experienced in my life. Many of you know this, but life without hope feels like death. For me, the cloud coverage was comprehensive. I could not see any light at the end of the tunnel. I was convinced, absolutely convinced, that I would never be happy again, that I would never experience joy again, that my best years were behind me, not in front of me. And even though I had always had sympathy for people I had met along the way who struggled with suicidal thoughts and wanting to end their life, I could never empathize with them because I had never been where they were. But now for the first time in my life, I contemplated taking my own life Every day. To me, death seemed so much more preferable than life. Minutes felt like hours. Hours felt like days. Days felt like weeks. Weeks felt like months. I know that some of you in a room this size have experienced that or you are experiencing that. And many of you who haven't may experience that sometime down the road. But life without hope without joy, without something to look forward to, feels like death. And in those moments, death does seem preferable to life. And I've spent now four years deeply reflecting on everything that led up to my crash and the ways in which I initially responded to my crash. And with the help of my wife, Stacy, and some good friends who stuck with me, some non-blinking friends who stuck with me and some good counseling. One of the things that I've realized is that we typically don't know how deeply we depend on things to make life worth living until those things are gone. See, I didn't realize it at the time, but my value, my security, my deepest sense of who I was, my identity was anchored, was tethered to things like my success, my reputation, my position, my friends, my ability to lead, the the praise that I received, the opportunities that I had, and so on and so forth. And so because of this, because my identity, because my worth and my value were so 
anchored to things like that. When those things were gone, I didn't just suffer grief and pain and shame and regret. I began at 41 years old to suffer a severe identity crisis. It's a scary thing to be in the middle of life and not know who you are or forget who you are or to have everything and everyone that in some sense defines you now gone. And without these things and without these people that I had depended on to make me feel valuable, to make me feel important, I no longer knew who I was. I felt dead, therefore I may as well be dead. See, when the Bible speaks about idolatry, it's not simply speaking about some wooden statue or some rock statue or some metal statue that people in far-off lands bow down to. An idol, according to the Bible, is anything that we depend on, smaller than God, to invest our lives with meaning and worth and value. Anything that we depend on, smaller than God, to define us, to identify who we are. And so if that's the case, then oftentimes idols can be good things. You know, our, our spouse, our, our children, gifts from God. Our, our job, our reputation, our hopes, our dreams, whatever the case may be. But the gifts of God take the place of God and become the ultimate definers of our lives. And when that happens, those things become idols, things that we worship, whether we realize it or not, things that we depend on to make life worth living. Well, when I was at what I considered to be rock bottom, I was saying last night, and many of you know this, I'm sure, but just when you think you've hit rock bottom, oftentimes you discover that there's another lower level. I discovered many of those in 2015 and the early parts of 2016. Many, many of those. But at this point, I really was at rock bottom. I was ready to throw in the towel. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the pain, the shame, the guilt, the regret, the loss. I was really at rock bottom. And when I was at that place, I reached out to a friend of mine by the name of Paul Zoll. He's a retired Episcopalian minister who is really like a father figure to me. He and I were close before I bottomed out but we became even closer after I bottomed out. You know, it's very difficult to know who your friends are when you're at the top and you have so much to offer. But when you're at the bottom and you have nothing to offer but liability and leprosy to people, you discover pretty quickly who your true friends are. And Paul's all was one of those true friends, continues to be one of those true friends. Uh, as everybody was leaving... Paul was moving in, and I sent him a text one morning and told him I was done. Like, if he had some final words for me that could help, I was all ears, but I was done. I just, I could not take the pain and the loss and the regret and the shame and the guilt anymore. And normally, Paul responds pretty quickly. And this time, I sent him a text, and there was... A period of time before he responded. And later on, he told me that the reason it took so much time for him to respond was not because he wasn't available, but because he was thinking and praying about what to say specifically. 
He had walked me through the valley of the shadow of death more times than one. He knew me so, so well. And he said these words to me. And if there's anything you remember that I say this morning, I hope and pray that you remember these words. Whether you need to hear them right now or you will need to hear them at some point. He said to me, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you or to kick you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Paul understood that the reason that I was experiencing what felt like the flesh being ripped off of my bones was because for so long, unconsciously, I had depended on things smaller than God and what God had done for me in Christ to define me. And so as I, as I was losing those things, as a result of losing those things, I was undergoing this massive identity crisis, not knowing who I was in my own skin. And because he knew that, he said, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to kick you or to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. Now, he didn't say the reason you are suffering. I knew the reasons why I was suffering. I knew that it was my sin, it was my choices that caused this pain. I knew that. It wasn't someone else's choices, regardless of what anybody else in my life did. The choices I made were mine. I was responsible for this mess that I made. And so I didn't... I didn't uh, I wasn't concerned, not that I wasn't concerned, but I, just, I wasn't confused about the reasons why I was suffering. Now, some of you may know this, but if you crash and burn, if you bottom out, if you really screw up in life, there will be no shortage of people to remind you of the reasons why you're suffering, okay? I mean, people seem to always be right there to remind you of the reasons why you're suffering. You made this bed, you sleep in it, you deserve this, okay? I knew the reasons, and there were plenty of people reminding me on a regular basis. What I could not see was the purpose behind it. Was there any purpose whatsoever behind what I was experiencing? Was there anything that God was going to do? Was there anything that God could do, not only in me, but through me as a result of this mess that I had made? So when he said... The purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to push you into a new freedom from false definitions of who you are. A light bulb went off in my head and in my heart. Something inside of me began to turn at that moment because for the first time I could see the sun peering through the dark clouds. For the first time I could see just a dim light at the end of the tunnel that maybe God really was good and gracious and forgiving and unconditionally loving. Maybe there is a way that God can not only use this to help other people one day, but that he can use this to really set me free, to redefine me in a way that would ultimately liberate me. So I don't, I don't know what you're going through or what you're currently losing. I don't know what your shattered dreams are. I don't know what you've suffered or what you're guilty of doing. I don't know your deepest fears. I don't know your insecurities. I don't know your secrets. And I don't know your shame. 
I know that all of us at some level struggle with all of those things because we are broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. But I don't specifically know what those things are for you. What I do know about you, regardless of who you are, and me is this. Who you truly are has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with how much you can accomplish or who you can become or what you've done or failed to do or how smart you are or what other people think of you or your behavior, good or bad, or your strengths, or your weaknesses, or your family background, or your education, or how you look, or how your kids turn out, or whatever. Who you really are has nothing to do with you. Your identity is ultimately anchored in Jesus' accomplishment, not yours. His strength, not yours. His performance, not yours. His victory, not yours. And what that means is this. You are not what you do or fail to do. You are what Jesus has done for you. And that means that the foundation and the focus of Christianity is Christ's substitution, not our transformation. I think a lot of people, both inside and outside the church, get that confused. They think that the focus and the foundation of the Christian faith is all about me, what I do, what I fail to do. It's all about my performance for God rather than God's performance for me. It's all about what I do for God rather than what God has done for me. And it generates a real kind of spiritual narcissism, what I call spiritualized navel-gazing, where the Christian faith becomes all about me. What I do, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Is this whole thing's riding on me? But the good news of the Christian faith is that, the, is that this whole thing is riding not on our shoulders, but on the shoulders of another and that this whole thing is primarily, fundamentally, foundationally about Christ's substitution, not my transformation. And the reason that's good news for you and for me is because if God's love and acceptance of me is based on my transformation, I'm in trouble. If God's love and acceptance of me is based on my ability to change or my ability to clean up my act or my ability to fix myself or to fix other people, then I'm, I'm in trouble. And so are you. Because I'm not the Christian that I ought to be, nor am I the father or the friend or the husband that I should be. I wish, for instance, that I could say I do everything for God's glory. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you read that, but I'll tell you what goes through my mind. Fail. Categorical failure. Think about that verse for a second. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, everything, comprehensive, do it all, not just externally, but internally, do it all to the glory of God. In other words, serve him flawlessly. Not just on the outside like the Pharisees did, but from the inside with a motivational structure of the heart that is completely selfless. So I read 
Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And it makes me go, thank God for Jesus. Okay? Because I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. I can't, and neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus' blood covers all of my efforts to glorify myself. That's the gospel. I wish that I could say, for instance, Jesus fully satisfies me. Now, if there's anybody in this room that can stand up with a straight face and say, Jesus fully satisfies me, you're delusional, okay? I have a friend named Jean LaRue from New Orleans who says, if you're not the worst person you know, you do not know yourself very well. If you can look around and say, he's worse, she's worse, you don't know yourself very well. Why was it that at the end of Paul's life, the end of his life, the guy wrote half the New Testament, planted you know, hundreds of churches, and the Apostle Paul, you know? Why was he able at the end of his life to say, I am the worst person I know, the chief of sinners? See, the closer we get to God, the weaker we understand ourselves to be. As we come into contact with the perfection of God more and more, we become more acutely aware of our own imperfections. And so I wish that I could say Jesus fully satisfies me. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus fully satisfied God for me. I wish that I could say I surrender all to Jesus. I can't. Neither can you. What I can say is that Jesus surrendered all for me. Substitution. It's what gives us life. It's what gives us access to God. It's what connects us to God in an inseparable way. It's Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say... If you clean up your act, there will be no condemnation for you. If you get it right, God won't condemn you. Do good, and then you'll get good. It doesn't say that. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he explains why at the end of Romans 8. He says, there is nothing in heaven and nothing on earth that can separate you from God's love. How can that be? Because God's love for you has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And everything minus Jesus that equals nothing. You see, I, most people assume that Christianity is good advice for good people rather than good news for bad people. Most people assume that. I mean, most people that I talk to inside and outside the church assume that Christianity is good advice for good people rather than good news for bad people. But the fact is that God loves bad people because bad people are all that there are. Um... Remember when Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous, I've come for the sinner. He wasn't saying, there's a group of people that are good, therefore they don't need me. They're doing fine on their own. 
But over here, there's a group of people that are bad. They're really tanking. They need me. I've come for them, not them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there are two kinds of people in this world. There are bad people who think that they're good, and there are bad people who know that they're bad. And the bad people who think that they're good tune me out because they don't think they need me. The bad people who know that they're bad, they're the ones that hear my voice. Remember when the prostitute barges into the part of the dinner party with Pharisees? I mean, that's the last kind of party you want to barge into if you're a prostitute, okay? And Jesus is having dinner with the Pharisees, and this prostitute heard that Jesus was in town, so she barges through the front door, interrupts dinner, falls on her face, and begins washing Jesus' feet with her tears. And the Pharisees begin mumbling and murmuring and saying things like, if this man knew who this woman was, there is no way he would let her touch him. And Jesus, knowing that that's what they're thinking and saying, sits back and says, you guys have it backwards. You think that she needs to become more like you. But I say you actually need to become more like her. See, God loves bad people because bad people are all that he has to choose from. I have a friend named David Zoll, Paul Zoll's son, um, there are a few Zolls in this world. David is one of my good friends. And he says, we admit that all have fallen short of God's glory, but that seems to never prevent us from comparing distances. <laughs> well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. Well, I'm, no, I'm not perfect. Nobody is, but I'm sure better than her. We do this all the time. The law of God levels the playing field. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that puts everybody on the same playing field, on a level playing field. The grace of God comes in and says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is a very freeing thing to admit that you are weak and needy and bad. It is a very freeing thing to acknowledge that you are not a success, that you're a failure, that you're not a winner, you're a loser. Because this whole thing, your worth and value and security and significance and all those things that you crave down deep, those things are not dependent on you achieving worth by becoming something or by becoming someone or by getting people to think of you in a certain way. That enslaves us, absolutely enslaves us. It is incredibly difficult for me to stand up week after week in whatever church I'm in, in whatever city I'm in, and stand up publicly and say, I cheated on my first wife. It's embarrassing. I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. I cringe every time I say it. When I talk about how arrogant I was and when I talk about how selfish I was and when I talk about how entitled I felt, it's embarrassing but I know of no other way to show you the best parts of God without in some way showing you the worst parts of me. I think it was Janis Joplin who said, freedom is another word for nothing left to lose, okay? It's true. There is something so liberating about finally being able to tell the truth about yourself and go, I'm weak. I'm not strong, I'm weak. I'm not good, I'm bad. I'm not a winner, I'm a loser. I'm not mighty and successful. 
I fail. So freeing. Telling the truth about yourself is only possible when you understand the truth about God. That God's love for you is unconditional. There are no strings attached to it. There is nothing you can do or fail to do that will ever tempt God to leave you or forsake you. You can never out the coverage of God's forgiveness, ever. And when you know that, when that truth grips your heart and grasps your heart, you finally begin to feel the freedom to tell the truth about yourself. Because the one thing you need more than anything else, you can never lose. So people might come and people might go. You might tell the truth about yourself and people will reject you for it. But if they do, in reality, you've lost nothing needful. Because everything you need in Christ you have. One of the illustrations that I use to describe this truth is a story I've told many times about a time when I was late for a meeting, late for an appointment, and I was looking for my car keys and I couldn't find them. And so I began to interrogate all of the humans in my home, starting with my three children who were smaller at the time and who were notorious for picking things up and misplacing them. And so I went after all of them. I said, I, I'm late for a meeting. I'm late for an appointment. I need, I need my keys. Have you seen my keys? They all said they hadn't seen them. I said, you're not going to get in trouble, okay? You're not going to get in trouble if you were playing with them. I, I got to go. So just tell me where they are. I promise you you're not going to get in trouble. They all said, we have no idea, Dad, where they are. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I go back to my room one last time to look for my car keys, stuck my hand in my pocket, and they were there. I mean, I looked for like 10 minutes. And every time I tell that story, wherever I go, people always say, what kind of idiot spends his time and energy looking for something he already has? And my answer is always every single one of us. We spend so much time and energy looking behind every tree and under every rock for meaning and love and acceptance and value. And the good news of the gospel is God's shout to you and me, to broken, bad people that the keys are already in our pocket. All of the love and acceptance and value and worth that we need, we already have in Christ and when you begin to see that and understand that, you become fearless in telling the truth about yourself, which is why John says perfect love casts out all fear. Well, fear of what? Fear of losing what you can never lose. Fear of telling the truth about yourself. Fear of acknowledging the truth about yourself. So, most of the people that I meet these days are people like me. My wife and I travel all over the country, and we're in a different city, it seems like, every week, and we're in a different church, it seems like, every week, and I tell my story very openly and transparently, and transparency has a tendency to breed transparency, and so as a result of me telling my story, other people tell me their stories. I write about my story, I talk about my story, and so they write in or they talk to me about their story. And most of the people I meet these days are people like me, people who live with guilt and shame and regret because of what they've done, people who would do anything to go back in time and make different choices but are presently plagued knowing that they can't, people who fear that they will never hope again, people who endure the painful void of broken relationships, people who really struggle to believe that anybody, even God, could love them because they've screwed up too many times. And while all of their stories are different, 
there's one common thread that runs through all of them. All of their circumstances are different, their stories are different, but there's one common thread that runs through all of their common circumstances, and it's this. The church is all too often the scariest place rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break down. The Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor once said, the operation of the church is entirely set up for the sinner, which creates much misunderstanding amongst the smug. So true. You see, churches, I'm convinced of this. Everywhere we go, we see it. Churches that will thrive in any meaningful way going forward will not be castles of purity where only the morally fit feel comfortable, but rather basements of grace where broken sinners are embraced and forgiven. Places where sin does not shock and grace still amazes. Because I'm telling you right now, God is not looking for another photoshopped church with another photoshopped pastor. People see right through, I, trust me, people see right through Christians who deny the reality of their own struggle and who see themselves as examples of morality rather than trophies of grace. People are craving realness and authenticity and transparency and honesty and the courage to acknowledge their struggles and how God's love and grace touch them in those places where they most acutely feel their leprosy and their weakness. So if I could say anything to Spring Hills, I would say this. Continue to be a church that reminds people that while we can never go back to a past we have lost or ruined, we can always go to God. A God who promises to love and use weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people. Now, some places we go, I have to say, become a church like this. At Spring Hills, I have the privilege of saying, continue to be a church like this. If this is your home church, you are blessed. This is an amazing place, and you have amazing leadership here. If this is not your home church, and you're just visiting, leave that church and come to this one, okay? Now, Brett thinks that, but he doesn't have the freedom to say it. I actually have the freedom to say it, okay? Um, this is a great place, so continue to be a church that reminds people that God loves and uses weak people because weak people are all that there are. Continue to be a church that reminds people that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Continue to be a sanctuary, a church that reminds people that God has forgiven the sins of our yesterdays and our todays and, and our tomorrows and that the sins we can't forget, God doesn't remember. That's what Hebrews 8.12 says. I will remember their iniquities no more. Beautiful. It's not that God can't remember. It's that he chooses not to remember. It's even more powerful. Grace upon grace, continue to be a church that never stops shouting, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Continue to be a church that reminds people that God will never stop pursuing us no matter how far or how fast we run. That if we're not dead, God's not done. 
continue to remind people, continue to be a church that reminds people of the seemingly too good to be true nature of grace that inseparably connects us to the God of repeat offenders. Continue to be a church that reminds the guilty that it is finished. Don't ever stop being a church in this community and throughout the world that reminds people that the keys are already in their pocket. Let's pray together.